Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 20th, 2014, and this is episode 1319 of the Survival Podcast. i got a good one for you today. Glenn Tate will be on the air with me in just a moment. We're going to be talking about his 299 Days series of books and the movie that he is uh, working to try to get made uh, based on the 299 Days series. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today, KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you want to learn how to build knives, go to KnifeKits.com. If you already know how to build knives and you want you know, materials to build knives with, go to KnifeKits.com. If you don't really care about knives, but you want to do Kydex, go to KnifeKits.com. They've got it all. They're a great sponsor, uh, and they serve everybody from the person just learning that wants to use a kit to the master bladesmith looking for exotic materials. They have an incredible reputation on the blade forums and other places like that. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. And remember, they do give a discount to members of our Member Support Brigade. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. I've been reading Backwoods Home Magazine since the early 90s when I got out of the United States Army. This is back around 1993. I've been a subscriber ever since. They bring you the best information I can find on self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty with a libertarian flair. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. They also have a special deal for members of the Sport Brigade. Uh, next up, our MSB discounter of the day. This is a company that does a discount for our members, uh, but it's not an official sponsor. And today's is the Primal Power Method, run by expert council member Gary Collins, uh, who is a former FDA uh, s- secret agent, actually, um, who uh, has an insider's look at nutrition and health, along with a degree in, uh, in, in nutrition and health. And he's developed his Primal Power Method to help you improve your health. Uh, check him out today at primalpowermethod.com. Uh, which is a good segue into the MSB. If you can, if you join the member support brigade, you get discounts on everything from tactical to practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. The stuff you're probably buying anyway. The membership program that pays for itself. Um, you can learn more about the MSB by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. If you can tell, I'm kind of rushing through the uh, intro today. I picked up some kind of crud while on that uh, pressurized metal tube, either on the way to or back from California. My wife's got it, too. Uh, my voice is pretty strained. I was planning on doing a show today to run tomorrow. I probably won't do that now. We probably won't have a show tomorrow. Uh, I apologize for that. I'll see if I feel a little bit better later today, and maybe I can get something out for you. But right now, as you can hear, um, not good. The good news is I recorded the show with Glenn yesterday, and my voice was weak but much better. Uh, um, so, uh, so with, without further ado, let's go ahead and bring Glenn on, and uh, I think you'll hear an immediate change for the better in my voice. Again, I will try to get something out for you guys tomorrow uh, on the uh, show, but um, we'll see how it goes because, well, my voice is my livelihood, and as you guys can hear, it is strained quite a bit. And with that, hey, Glenn, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Hey, um, we've got you on to talk about uh, your 299-day series and uh, uh, hopefully uh, successful uh, to be launched very soon Kickstarter campaign. But uh, before we do that, some folks may not know, well, who the hell is Glenn Tate? So can you, 
Can you give us the background about who Glenn Tate is, including the fact that you're not actually Glenn Tate, you're Glenn Tate, but you're not Glenn Tate, and kind of your background and, and why you ended up writing the book 299 Days in the first place, or the books, I should say. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Glenn Tate's a pen name. Um, I have to shield my identity uh, a little bit. I work in a job. I work in the state capital of Olympia, uh, Washington State Capital, and I have a job observing government and doing kind of political things and legal things. I'm I'm a lawyer, and if word got out that I was one of these crazy preppers, let alone that I wrote a bunch of books that talk about how the government's going to collapse and some inside stuff about what's going on in my state, um, I probably would be unemployed. So that's the reason to keep it on the down low. And so that's uh, that's me a little bit, and um, the books are about a regular guy who started listening to this crazy podcast called the Survival Podcast, right, and got some information on a crazy forum called the TSP forum and uh, and started prepping because I can see from my job some things that others don't get to see and I don't want to exaggerate I don't have the secret memo I don't have the FEMA death camp memo there's nothing I don't want to exaggerate nothing like that but just sort of the the trends maybe you see in the headlines well I get to see a little bit of the backstory and sort of get to verify those at least in my own mind so um, that's what it is wrote it didn't think anyone would read it because um, I just I'm not an arrogant guy. I just assumed that I'd write it for kind of my own purposes, just to write it. And I called a publisher, and boom, first one I called, I had this ten book publishing deal, and it's just gone bananas from there. And um, I just can't even believe all the great things that have happened. So that, in a nutshell, is what it's about. Can you tell folks a little bit more about your your personal background, like how you ended up being an attorney? You know, you, you really kind of came from the, the the world of being a country boy at one time and got into what you call the Docker years and things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an unusual story, and you and I have kind of a similar um, background when it comes to this. I grew up um, in a rural area. Uh, I grew up poor, and we we did all this stuff that we called living like we cut wood because we were cold and electricity was expensive uh we hunted and fished because it was free groceries uh we we fixed our own stuff because <laughs> we couldn't afford um other things so i grew up this this country boy with these country boy skills um decided that i didn't really want to do that i wanted to go off to the city and be a professional and when i did that became a lawyer and uh got caught up in the in the suburban life the comfortable suburban life of of being a lawyer and over the years uh, the docker years as i call them because i was wearing dockers and even this is pathetic to admit i even attempted to learn how to play golf if you've ever seen me try to play golf it's pretty pretty ugly experience so um i I went and tried to do all that american dream stuff and wasn't working out and then i i realized how fragile and uh, american society is just-in-time inventory, how nobody can take care of themselves, it seems like. And I looked around my peers, and I thought, oh, my goodness, the electricity goes off, trucks quit rolling, uh, something like that, and and everybody I know is is going to die a miserable death. This is crazy. I mean, this just shouldn't be. I mean, people should be self-reliant to the extent they can be and everything. And I, I looked around, and, and then I started, as I mentioned, <laughs> listening to, to your podcast and got on the forum and learned a bunch of things and it just took off from there and I said, okay, I have to take care of my family. Uh, if I just go along with everybody else, I'm going to end up like everybody else and I think that's a bad place. So I started 
prepping, started shooting more, started learning things, and um, uh, just went from there. And and there's no turning back now. Well, and there was a lot of that story written into the 299 Days series, including the uh, what we call reluctant spouse syndrome as well, right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's part of the story. Um, you know, I, in this normal suburban world of mine, um, you know, my wife's fantastic, um, came from a, a different background than I came from, and doesn't understand because she's never she's never had the power go out, right? She's never been cold, never been hungry. Uh, quite candidly, has never been around violence. Uh, good for her. That's a great way to grow up. I'm, I'm happy for her. I'm not being sarcastic. I think it's fantastic. But I grew up in a rough place with rough people, and I understand you know, what fighting's about. I understand how to stay out of fights by using your voice to try to not get in a fist fight. So I understood this whole, what I consider to be the real world, right? And she didn't. And so when I started doing things that seemed really odd to her, like having a little bit of drinking water in the house, um, it, it sparked a lot of conflict. And I had a choice, and I could become – I could go back to the docker years, right? I could become a, a, a domesticated you know, animal, basically. Um, or I could do what I'm just convinced I need to do, which is take care of my family, take care of myself. So there's a lot of that – conflict and one of my favorite threads of all time on the TSP forum is flip that spouse um, where we have over the years discussed this topic I think helped out a lot of people I mean I've been encouraged by people people have the same problem it's weird it's usually uh, the wife or girlfriend who is reluctant but not always I mean sometimes we have reluctant males and the way people do you think yeah. Glenn, that, that a big part of why a lot of times spouses are reluctant is not because they don't believe that there's a reason to prepare, but they don't want to think about the fact that there's a reason? Yeah, exactly right. Um, my wife, for example, is extremely intelligent, and I know that she understands what's going on. Maybe not to the level I do. She doesn't spend the time and the energy and, and doesn't want to think about it. But she knows that bad things are coming and are, are largely avoidable, right? You can do some things now to really um, come out of this much, much better than the average person. But it's that, that denial that this can't be coming true. One of the things that I think it is, is that in America, we've had it so good for so long that a lot of people, normal people, I call them, right, are just thinking, well, that can't happen in America. Well, yeah, it can. It's happened everywhere in the world in every period of history, and even in America, Katrina, elsewhere. Heck, ice storms. Ice storms and the power goes out and people are getting in, in pushing matches in the grocery store over milk. I mean, this happens all the time. And this doesn't seem surprising to me. I, I admit it doesn't happen every day, right? But it doesn't seem weird to me, again, because... But you know what? It does happen every day. It just doesn't happen every day in one place. Somewhere in the world, every day... Somebody's fighting over access to resources and food. Yeah. Like in Crimea? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, one way or another, I mean, it makes me think of, I watch a show called uh, Bizarre Food with Andrew Zimmer. And you, not really a prepper show, obviously, other than he's pretty well prepped. He could probably hibernate for a season or two and survive. Uh, <laughs> but... uh he was in Africa one time, and they decided that, you know, they had some money on them, obviously. It goes a long way, and I think we're in Ethiopia, and they were at a bazaar. And they bought 
they just basically said to this lady, how much to buy every bit of food in your 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 stand? And she said, well, it was not this much money. They said, well, here, and we'll just let people line up and get a bowl of food. And it near started a riot. And it was actually some of the older boys that basically came in, beat up the younger boys, got their food, and then stood in line and kept everybody in line while they waited. That prevented it from going, you know, off the deep end. So if an act of kindness, like buying people a plate of food, can result in a near riot in a resource-strapped area, um, when people have come to expect that it will be there, obviously it can go much worse, much faster. Yeah, and when you add into that um, sleep deprivation and low blood sugar and a bunch of other things, people will, and there are studies about this, and you've talked about this, people will turn mean and nasty at varying times, but it's only a matter of a couple days. I mean, 72 hours seems to be a number that comes up. And this happens over and over again, and a lot of Americans have never seen it or thought of it, and they're really at a disadvantage. They're really mentally not prepared for this, and that, I think, is going to get a lot of people killed. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and could you talk a little bit <clears throat> about the attitudes that people in government actually have about these things? And I mean, on both sides of the aisle, the same person that's just opening up the checkbook and spending the money and saying we need to do all these social programs and all, they they know that the hourglass is running out as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I know some state officials. One of them comes to mind. He's a pretty high-ranking guy. He's um, probably the best-prepared prepper I've ever you know, met in person. Um, I've seen his stuff. I was I was honored to get to see his stuff, and um, I was shaking my head and thinking, "Oh my goodness!" I thought I was squared away. This guy's really squared away, and he sort of shrugs about it all, and he says, "We are spending way more money than we have. It absolutely cannot continue, just as a matter of mathematics." And then he describes, and I've seen some of the political implications of this. When the money stops, see, the money's buying peace right now with everybody, but when the money stops. Everyone will be at each other's throats. There aren't nearly enough law enforcement people out there to stop, you know, these things. There's, there's, you know, what is it? I don't know, like one police officer for every, I don't know, a couple thousand people in any given town. And so once that starts, it, it can't stop. And, and, and he recognizes, because he thinks politically, um, that Americans, many Americans, feel entitled to free stuff. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. I think by design, um, it's terrible, um, the dependency that's been created. But it's making it so that when that stuff's cut off, all of a sudden, you know, what are you doing? You're trying to kill me. I can't feed my kids. Um, I'm going to go get that stuff. I'm going to go walk into that Walmart and grab everything I can possibly grab. And and he views this as absolutely inevitable. He and I have conversations about how we can't believe it hasn't happened yet. Uh, <laughs> So that's really, really sobering. And I don't know anyone who that I've gotten to know well enough to talk about this topic, I should say, who thinks, oh, yeah, this is totally sustainable. This is going to go on forever. This is awesome. Everything's working out. I don't know a single person who thinks things are going well and are sustainable. And that that's really telling. And these are the folks who have a lot more information than regular people. They get the state budget forecasts, for example. I mean, they understand... <laughs> the deficits, at least at the state level. So think how bad it is nationally. So yeah, that is one of the things that really kicked me into high gear for prepping was seeing some people with amazing information who were taking pretty amazing steps. I mean, this guy I'm talking about in particular, I think if it got out that he was he was preparing like he was, um, I think that it probably would cost him his seat. 
It might. I mean, I know, and I won't give the name out, I know a federal congressman, a member of the House of Representatives, so there's enough of them not to divulge who it is just by saying the state, <clears throat> from the state of Texas, that listens to my show. Uh, I've actually spoken with his chief of staff, and he believes 100% that this is something that most Americans should be doing, but you don't hear him speak about it a lot because, like you said, I mean, it's something that will get you unelected really fast. Yeah, and everyone – well, everyone, the general population will think that you're crazy because the way it will be set up in the news, right, will be, you know, congressman says zombies are coming and everybody kind of chuckles and rolls their eyes and thinks, oh, boy, that's some crazy talk. Although I will say this, it seems that it's getting less and less crazy in the general yep. population, and I've been marveling at this, and since I'm, I'm a big fan of polling and, and politics, and, and I keep track of where the, at least to the extent I can, where the mood of the country is, um, I'm seeing a lot more acceptance of this, and that's good. I, I hope it's not too late. Um, I'll take it. I mean, the more people that are, that are understanding this, I'll, I'll take it, but... You know, it takes a while to crank up and get some of these things done, and so um, hurry up out there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that I think people are seeing it like in all aspects of the world too. Like, so you really focus on the economics of it, but the economics are tied to a lot of commodities, and a lot of commodities are coming into resource strap situations. So I'm not a big believer that peak oil is going to happen in the next five days, and the whole world's going to be out of oil, and ah, there'll be no oil. Um, but, I mean, the cost of the extraction and the people you have to be friends with, it seems like both of those things are getting worse all the time in order to have oil to meet the demands and needs that we have. From an agricultural standpoint, you know, just spending a week at Permaculture Voices and really hearing about some of the um, environmental catastrophes that are not coming but are well underway, um, the lack of resilience within our agricultural system is massive. Um, it seems like all of the scientific solutions are leading to, gee, unbelievably worse problems. Um, there's a lot of strife in the world. There's a lot of groups of people out there that are really tired of tyranny and beginning to rebel against it, which is good, but it causes its own level of strife. It gives another opportunity for big government and oppression and tyranny in the name of defense of, you know, people. Um, all of that, when you add to it the economic instability that our government has created with just economic lunacy, honestly, it does lead to a place where I think the average person is starting to say, hey, wait a minute, sooner or later something, something's got to give in all of this. Well, you know, and people can see it with their own eyes, even if they're not looking for it. For example, look at the price of food, my goodness, beef and everything else, and it's going to get worse with this California drought and all this other stuff. It's going to be really bad. Well, then people notice it, and a couple of people have said to me, wow, have you seen the price of hamburger? It's gone up. To, to whatever it's at, and I say, yeah, that's crazy. And I, then I look at him and I say, you know, Federal Reserve says the inflation rate's 1.5%. That's kind of goofy, isn't it? And I mm -hmm. let them think about it. And so some of them are coming to conclusions by looking around their own world and and good on them. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit more about the story as we get into what you guys want to do with making it into a movie. Uh, 299 Days is the story of a collapse. But unlike every other book I've read on a collapse of the American economy, you took the approach of a partial collapse, which I actually think is far more realistic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it was very purposeful. Um, I didn't go about this to say, oh, I'm going to write a story that's different. I just started writing down what I think is going to happen based on what I see and, and what I read. And 
And you brought this point up a long time ago. Um, the more dramatic something is, the less likely it is to occur. And that's how you need to order your preps. I mean, I guess you could prepare for a massive meteor strike. Pretty unlikely. Um, devastation would be huge. And then you kind of go down from there into the more likely things. The example you've always used is uh, you get a flat tire on your way to work. You know, we'll have a spare tire, have some fixed flat, have a AAA card, whatever it might be. So taking that principle, which has been my experience in life too, the more dramatic something is, less likely it is to occur. I thought what would be the most likely would be a partial collapse, which would be an economic collapse, but not, you know, cannibalism and zombies in the streets and all that other stuff. There would still be some functioning uh, services. There would still be some trucks running. I think the utilities stay on for a reason that's described in the book. That's um, kind of a plot twist that I won't get into. It'll spoil it for some folks. But I think the utilities stay on for the most part. Um, and I also think it varies by region. And this is really critical. I think some parts of this country will be pretty, I don't know, pretty decently well off. I mean, things will be unpleasant, but it won't be the end of the world. Other places, I'm thinking uh, L.A., <laughs> Chicago, yeah. New York City, um, are going to be just complete horrible places to be, and you don't you don't want to be anywhere near it. So, and I think that the political response will be different different too, because we have um, a couple different cultures in this country: um, a more self reliant, a more liberty oriented, not perfect by any means. Um, I don't know mindset in primarily. I'm going to say the South and the West. And then in the Northeast and California, you've got more of a statist approach. And I see those things um, going forward and getting more exaggerated, more statism in the statist places and a little bit more liberty in the liberty places. The thing that could throw a wrench in everything I'm saying would be an excessive rule of law situation, which could happen you know, permanently or at least temporarily where there's a crackdown. But I think even a crackdown... Uh, and a big, massive crackdown would end up being a partial collapse, and here's why. Because a big, massive crackdown, the federal government declaring martial law, for example, I think would be pretty short-lived because of logistics. Um, yeah. The supply... You're talking about collapse, right? So the yeah. la that's the last point that you have, the resources to effectively marshal uh, a martial law engagement nationwide, coast-to-coast, and if you are going to do that, where do you have to go? You have to go to the. You have to put the majority of your resources in the places that are in the worst condition. L.A., Chicago being two places. I think as bad as New York City would be, I think L.A. and Chicago will make it look like friggin' Disneyland. I think those two areas will be. You don't have the gang presence in New York City that you do. In L.A. and Chicago, mm -hmm. the, the gang presence there, I think, is very, very underestimated. So if you are the federal government and you're in the middle of a collapse and the whole world's falling apart and you're trying to hold your empire together and you are going to send the thugs in and, you know, let's say, you know, Tallahassee, Florida is kind of keeping it together. You don't have the resources to send your thugs there. you got to send them to the places that are burning. Exactly right. And there's going to be limitations. Um you know, you were in the military. You know about spare parts. You know about logistics. You know, the the more complicated the American military is, the more that that thirty five dollar part uh, is important because everything's electronic and and relies on. Computer. And I can only bypass stuff, right? Like when I was a mechanic, a guy, you know, they drag a truck in uh, in in Honduras, and they're like, "Well, what's wrong with it?" I'm like, "You you burned out the clutch." They're like, "Well, fix it." I'm like, "I'll fix it Tuesday." 
And they're like, why Tuesday? So that's when the helicopter with a new clutch is going to get here. Yep. I can't make a clutch for you. I, you know, you blew the engine in this. This truck is screwed. You know, maybe we'll get an engine next week. I don't know. But right now we don't have an engine, and I can't, just because I'm a mechanic, I can't lay hands on it and say the mechanic's creed and bring life to your truck. There's a logistical component that, and if that's, that's not just true of trucks. That's true of trucks, it's tanks, it's guns, it's airplanes, it's paychecks. Right to get your people paid, there's a logistical component, and I, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you stop paying people, they tend to stop doing what you ask them to do, <laughs> and they they tend to go out and look for work where they can be paid, and that I think we're going to see a lot of military and some law enforcement going out and being private security contractors. I think you know some will be good guys and maybe some will be bad guys. It'll vary by individual, and that's another thing that we have in common. We we don't. You know, hate everybody in uniform. Um, we look at people individually, and and as described in the books, um, some will do good things, some will do bad things, some will start off one way and end up switching and going over. Because again, that's my experience in life. That's how that's how people are. So that's why I don't think it'll be a total collapse. And um, you learn about that in in the book, and then you, you you can see how the good guys can start to rebuild a little bit and get communities. Um, Stabilized, I think, would be the best word. And there's a lot of lessons, I think, to be learned in that about how the community comes together. And it's not all rah rah. We're waving flags and everything's wonderful. Because again, <laughs> it's not my experience in life, yep. uh, especially not in politics. And so um, there's things about how to rally a community. It's not just about what needs to be in a bug out bag. That's all good stuff, and that's in there too. But um, it's about putting a community together in a in a way that I think it can. It can last a lot of civil affairs stuff um, from the military, which is weird because I've never been in the military and I, I'm not a civil affairs person. But um, I think I, I stumbled onto stuff because I thought, well, here's what I would do if I needed people to all be pulling in the same on the same page. Here's what I would do. I'd make sure they're fed. I'd make sure they have hope. I'd make sure that there was fairness, even if in a justice system, even if it meant I didn't get to do what I want to do, which would be like, you know, beating a child molester to death, that's what I want to do, but I, I can't, right? Because yeah. there needs to be a trial and there needs to be some stuff that is, is a process that everyone can buy into. So when you, these are some of the, the things that come out in some of the books. So not only can people maybe take care of themselves, maybe we're going to have some communities that, that have a better chance of getting through it because of some of the community building um, ideas that are woven into this story. Yeah, definitely. Now, tell people about the plan to turn this this book series into a movie. It's going to be a two hour movie. Yes, it certainly will. Um, it's it's amazing. Uh, the community come together. It's it's fantastic. Um, we we got a lot of requests to to do a movie. Um, a, a book is great, but a picture is worth a thousand words. And so we we wanted to do this. And and how do you go about and do it? It's it's a huge undertaking. Um, so we, we're going to try to raise some money, um, some DVD pre-sales, and a Kickstarter campaign um, that I can describe. And we're, <laughs> we're not relying on Hollywood to come in and uh, make this and do a good job of it. Um, that's just not going to happen. I mean, they're communists in Hollywood. That's the only word I can use for them. Um, well, the only word I should use on, on a podcast that's family-friendly. But um, they're not going to do it. And so what we had to do was uh, do this ourselves. I was 
contacted by a TSP forum member. Um, it's been on the forum since 2009, and, and you can't make that up. I mean, there are posts out there, and they're dated, and so you know. And um, I put the word out to the TSP forum when the book first came out in the last part of uh, 2012. I said, hey, this is crazy, but maybe if we ever want to do a movie or a TV series, does anyone know anybody in our community who has TV and film experience? I didn't expect to get any responses. Well, I did. A uh, Texas girl on the forum put uh, me in touch with somebody on the forum, and um, I gave him a call and found out that <laughs> he was reading the books, uh, <laughs> which is kind of nice. We got to know each other. He's He puts together... Um, uh, TV made for TV movies that are kind of in the in the budget range we're talking about. This is not you know a six hundred million dollar Avatar kind of thing. Um, we're going to put it together very well, but we're going to do it you know as minimally as we can as far as having to spend money. Um, so he's involved and um, he's he's put a lot into this. Um, came out to Texas, been out to the real cabin in the Seattle area a couple times, filmed a bunch of stuff, edited stuff. Isn't getting paid a dime. Uh, unless the the Kickstarter campaign funds and a movie will be made. Um, and here's the thing, and this is so critical. Uh, I am in complete control of the message of this movie. I'm not selling any rights. I never, ever will. I specifically own the copyright, and I control the message. Because I got an inquiry from a, a really big Hollywood uh, agency, and uh, they were interested in this. And the guy who contacted me was um, another guy in the community, but he was very honest with me, and he said, you know what, I mean, we can talk to you and stuff, but they're going to want to buy the rights, and even, even if they want to buy the rights, uh, and they're going to turn the good guys in your book into the bad guys, and the bad guys in your book are going to be the good guys. And he said, I'm willing to go forward if you want to, but I'm telling you, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> and I think he's right. So it's not one of these selling the rights and then you know, having Hollywood do this. The only interaction with Hollywood that we have is that we have a legitimate, experienced producer um, who can do a lot of this stuff, who has done a lot of this stuff with the uh, with the uh, Kickstarter video, for example. And so we've got the credentials and the experience to do this. We just don't have the Hollywood political baggage, and we're not going to try to fit into the Hollywood system. Well, and can you talk a little bit about why the audience really, you know, should care about what you're trying to do here? Because it, a lot of it is sort of kind of what you just said, that if you give Hollywood control of something, they will put their agenda behind it. And, you know, I've had this conversation a lot recently on the show. There is no human being on planet Earth without an agenda. If they're doing anything meaningful, they have an agenda. And I, I, some people have taken offense over that because I think that we have taken the word agenda and we've added the word subconsciously of hidden yeah right hidden agenda right like we don't even use words the right way anymore and that tells you something about how screwed up society is but but your agenda here is to present to people a, a reality-based scenario and neither of us are arrogant enough to believe that we know exactly what a collapse will look like we we, we take our best crack at it but we know that some something is going to give something is going to shift it may not be as bad as you say. It may be worse. We don't really know, but we want people to understand that, and we want it done with, you know, instead of saying without any agenda, we want it done with our agenda. Exactly. And my agenda, which I believe is the community's agenda too, is to get the message out and to have a rational, coherent, and I believe accurate portrayal of what 
preppers are. We're not the doomsday prepper people. I mean, it's so frustrating to try to articulate to people, friends and family, it, it, what it is I'm doing and why I'm doing it when they have all these preconceived notions. And they need to see with their own eyes. And so many general population Americans, uh, they go to movies, they think in terms of movies. If it's a movie that's presented as a movie, if it's a story that's presented as a movie, I guess I should say, it's sort of understandable and something they can follow. And they're going to they're gonna go and they're going to watch it and they're going to understand it and appreciate it. They may not be readers. They may not even listen to audiobooks. They probably don't get on blogs and forums and everything. They want sort of an easy way. And I'm not, I'm not putting anybody down. I mean, I'm the same way, right? I, if, if I can get a message that's, that's accurate and believable and get it in a low-impact way, in an entertaining way especially, that's what I'm going to do. So it's, it's getting this message out. The, the books have done that. Um, we're starting audiobooks in a while, and those will get out to another audience too. But I think the movie is where it really gets out to an even bigger audience. And and here's the thing: I wanted so badly for something uh, to have something that I could share with people. When and I still do. When I'm sitting there and I'm trying to convince a neighbor, and I'm not trying to turn him into a mini me and and you know own a ton of guns and do all this other stuff. I'm just I want my neighbor to be a little bit prepared so they're not coming over to my house trying to take my stuff. I mean, there's my not-so-hidden agenda, right? And I want to persuade people to be more self-reliant. I need a tool. And and you can tell them, and I do, about your podcast, the forum, and everything else. And that's all great. How many people out of the 310 million people in America listen to any given podcast, a teeny, teeny percentage? How many will watch a movie? You know, if this is a DVD or a Blu-ray that you hand somebody, if it's a computer download and you give them the password, I think people will take an hour and a half, whatever it might be, two hours maybe, and watch something, especially if it's well-made. You know, it looks like a real movie because it actually is a real movie. You know, this isn't the friends and family amateur hour with, you know, my cousin with a camcorder. That's that's not going to happen. So it'll be something that we can have to get the message out and and that's what that's what I'm looking for. Um, I'm looking for the accuracy to be told instead of this goofball doomsday prepper stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, I mean, another way of looking at that is I don't see this as being a way to get the message to people that are even at sometimes a little bit receptive to it. I think that, I mean, people watch movies all the time and they don't really give a damn initially that, you know, it, it helps you learn about something or whatever. They watch movies to be entertained. I mean, I don't know how many millions of people have watched, you know, one of the classic prepper things of all time that might be a little bit wacky in some ways, but Red Dawn. Mm -hmm. And I think Red Dawn has actually made a lot of people think, well, well, what if? And I think a lot of people, and I'm talking about the old Red Dawn, right? The the the, the cheesy one with Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen and all, <laughs> the one that we grew up with, with right? Like, oh, yeah. well, what would you do? And then you think, well, that, that the scenario in there is not very realistic, but the concept that you could end up in a situation where some people want you dead, and you got to do what you have to do to survive, and you have to rely on other people, and some of the people you're relying on may turn out to not be such nice people, and might actually be on the other side or get coerced into it, or something like that could happen, and how would you handle yourself? And that you know, can lead a very crooked path to some level of preparedness. And I think there's a lot of people in the preparedness movement that that movie at least scratched the surface. Now, if you make a movie that's, that's entertaining like that, but more realistic, I think you get a lot more what-ifs. Yeah, and one of the things about 
this series is is that it's not just gunfights and looting, although there's plenty of that, because I think in reality there will be plenty of that. It's about people, and it's about how they react to things, and the classic situation of everything you've ever known, you've got this comfortable suburban life, everything you ever have known gets tossed on its ear, gets turned upside down, and now crazy things are happening, and how people react to it, how they fight against it. Some people say, well, this is the new reality, here's what we're going to do, here's what we're going to do. When, when viewers can see people and they see how people react to things, and they can say, well, I understand why that person's doing that and that person's doing that. They're going to get the message of the story, and it's not just going to be um, a scene of a bunch of looters, and the message is you better have a lot of guns to shoot a bunch of looters. I mean, again, there's, there's action and stuff in here because there's going to be action in real life, but people are going to understand what we're talking about because they're going to understand the people because – I am that person. I'm the main character, and in everything I describe and, and the characters in the book, they're almost all entirely real. And people say, oh, my goodness, this story is so realistic. Well, Jack, that's because it's real. I'm not creative enough to make stuff up. That's the bottom line. And here's a classic example of that. There's a character in the book. You know him, Pal, six-foot Korean gunfighter who sells insurance. Everybody thinks, oh, you're so clever and creative. I'm not clever, and I'm not creative. He's my friend. He's six feet tall. He's Korean. He's an amazing gunfighter, and he sells insurance. So there's an example. People say, wow, I can relate to this. I can buy into this and believe it. It is real, and that's what is going to be, I think, the thing that transfers onto the screen is going to be the reality of it because I'm not making it up. I mean, I don't read other books. I don't watch other movies and things. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm super busy. I don't have time for it. I didn't create this this book series like modeled on something else, right? Because I don't know anything else. I just wrote down what I'm seeing and what I've been through and what I think is going to happen, and that's very, very real. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree with that. Um, you know, you're actually going. You, you mentioned like some of the the realness of the characters, and you have plans to have obviously actors play some of these characters. Um, can you tell us about some of the other people that might be in this uh, this film, and will there be any cameos or anything like that? <laughs> there sure will. Um, uh, Jack Spierko, should he choose to accept this assignment, um, will be playing himself because you know that's that's a pivotal pivotal part of the thing is where I'm listening to this uh, podcaster in his Jetta, right, yelling at um, ass clowns that are cutting him off and everything. <laughs> so there's that. Um, yeah. Um, to the extent people in the community can act and they need to actually, you know, be able to act and all of that, um, they're invited to try out. Um, my, you know, the, you get paid too. I mean, you'd have to be a member of the Screen Actors Guild for like one day or something like that, and uh, you get scale, right? So, um, see, again, this is a legitimate Hollywood thing, and so there'll be that. Um, um, there could be some some other folks who get a place in parts. We're still working on that. It's still in the works. I don't want to start throwing out names and then be wrong because that would be embarrassing. But, yeah, um, you're going to be in the movie again, <laughs> assuming you want to be. Um, and and there'll be there'll be that. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be in the movie because you know why? I'm a crappy actor, and I'm not going to make people suffer through a couple hours of watching me act just so I can feel like uh, I was in a movie or something. Um, I'm happy to just be Glenn Tate, the fake name, and nobody really knows who I am, and I'm happy as a clam uh, if I get to do that. So, yeah, um, should be some interesting folks. Uh, James Yeager from Tactical Response um, would love to be in the movie, and I think we've got a role for him that 
would fit in perfectly. So um, there, there's that. Um, yeah, what else can I tell you? Um, you actually, I saw something that I guess people will see soon. There's actually some uh, people that do serve in government that want a, a job acting. Yeah. <laughs> Is it likely to happen? Yeah, I think so. Um, what you're referring to, um, I'll, I'll blow a little bit of the surprise, but I'm, I'm happy to do it. In, in the, the Carter <laughs> video, we have two members of the Washington State House of Representatives who are true patriots. Um, I work with elected officials all the time. I dislike most of them, and there are only a handful, and I mean that like a, like a handful, teeny number, who are decent human beings and who, are, who have a track record with me personally of being on the same page. And uh, so there's two members of the State House who are in the Kickstarter video who talk about I'll, I'll be honest. I was I was really flattered and pleasantly surprised. I mean, I'd never heard him say these nice things about me. But they said this Glenn Tay guy. He's for real. He's an insider. He knows what's going on. You can tell from reading the books that he knows some of the stuff that goes on in government. And um, the other thing is, um, one of them, Representative Dave Taylor, uh, who's got this really awesome beard. I mean, he looks like a you know like a military contract or something. Um, he want he said he grew his beard out so he could play Special Forces Ted <laughs> wow. in the movie. And uh, the other representative, Matt Shea, who's just an absolute liberty rock star. I love the guy. Uh, he would like to play Snelling, who's the sniveling, evil loyalist, uh, turncoat, uh, bad guy. <laughs> Um, which is funny. I, I thought that was weird. I thought there was another role that uh, Representative Shea would want to play. But So there's going to be that kind of stuff. But again, I, I need to stress, um, other than cameos, people playing themselves, I mean, Jack, I mean, there's no way you could screw up playing Jack Spirico, right? I mean, no, it's impossible no. to, to not get that right. Um, but for speaking roles and other things, uh, people will need to to be legit and good because this is, this is a Hollywood thing uh, without the Hollywood. Excellent, yeah. And I would certainly do that, because my part wouldn't be very big anyway. It's just a, a, a little, really kind of a cameo in of itself of, of the actual story of how, you know, you found out about what we do here and became part of this community and a very big part of it, by the way. Um, if this list say everything goes fairly well, you, you know, the project funds, uh, you know, what's kind of a timeline to production when we could expect to see, you know, 299 days as a movie? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I don't have any hard figures for you, and so I'll give you my best guess. And that would be um, uh, the campaign would end on on May second, and uh, there'd probably be a period of time that we'd need to have a screenwriter um, cr- turn the books. Um, I should back up for a moment. We're going to be talking about one movie, which is books one and two. Um, if we get uh, after we do movie one, assuming we do, it, then I think raising money um, more traditional ways without selling the movie rights, I might add, um, would be easy, and we want to do a movie two and a movie three. But the answer on movie one would be that um, uh, there would be a screenwriter. Uh, we've already got a couple people in mind. Um, I don't. My my producer does because that's what he does for a living. And uh, turning that into a screenplay and then shooting it, um, our goal would be, um, you know, really – uh, aggressive goal, I think, would be the end of 2014. Um, there's a weather factor. Um, if we did this in California, if we filmed this in California, which we probably would have to for a variety of, of you know business and logistical reasons, we could film in California in December or January if we had to. Um, the Pacific Northwest would not work for that because <laughs> people would get electrocuted from the pouring down rain for several months. Um, so uh, that would be a factor. So I don't know. Um, 
my goal, maybe uh, shooting in, say, spring 2015, that's that's like a year from now, I understand, but um, we want to do it right. Maybe we can do it more quickly, but I don't want to be super, uh, I don't know, um, hopeful and throw out dates that end up being wrong. I think your your timeline in of itself is pretty aggressive, honestly, even or you think you're setting the bar a little bit low. Producing a movie takes time. It, 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 it's I think a lot of people too like so when people when you know when you do a video product and you put out like a one hour video product like an educational product or something like that it'd be like why is it thirty dollars why don't you just put it on YouTube for free so everybody can learn and they have no idea <laughs> they just I mean and you're talking about something with very little editing when you do an educational product right as long as you can see what's happening and maybe there's two camera angles you flip back and forth or what have you but you're still talking about hours and hours of editing. When you get into cinematography and the production of something that's designed to actually be a movie that somebody sits through and watches, that somebody that doesn't care about the agenda could watch and be entertained, and you try to get into that level of quality, it's, it's a long process. That You're shooting a scene 15, 20 times sometimes for a two-minute scene that's going to end up, by the time the final editing's done, being a 45-second scene with a pissed-off actor that wants to know why, I did all of that to only take 45 seconds out of it, and it's because in the end, we've got to make the movie fit. And I think people that have never even gone as far as shooting some YouTube video for themselves and doing a little bit of editing have no idea the work that goes on to produce one decent video. Oh, yeah, and I was talking about when it might be shot being like oh. a year from now. Oh, yeah, as far as it being wrapped up, um, late 2015 is my best okay. guess. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I'll tell you something. I had the same experience you're talking about. Um, I appear in the uh, Kickstarter video in silhouette, which I have to do for identity stuff, but um, I appear for, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds maybe, and that took an hour and a half at least to shoot. It took the producer a couple hours to edit and to put it together. And so one little teeny thing, and I'm not dramatic, I'm not an actor, there are no explosions, there's no helicopters, I mean, there's nothing complicated. I'm sitting in a chair, right? Yeah. And that really, really gave me an idea about how long it would take. I mean, it would take a month or two on the set, I'm guessing, to to get all this stuff nailed down. And uh, it's a tremendous... I'm learning so much about how movies are made, and I have a new appreciation for it. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And and speaking of all the other parts that go into it, you know, the, the crew parts, um, if people, TSP community have actual, you know, experience and credentials and want to get a hold of me and they want to be cast or even crew. I mean, we can use, geez, electricians and all that other stuff. Uh, there'll be a way of getting a hold of me and uh, getting a hold of producer, and we want to try to do that to the extent we can. Um, you can't delay stuff, uh, and, uh, and you got to be good at what you do. I mean, you still got to – but, I mean, we're trying to get as much of the community involved in, in every kind of role, so um, – There'll be some opportunities for that. I mean, there's even opportunities for people to appear in the movie, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to need background folks, uh, extras. Um, there, there are speaking lines that that are available um, at a certain level of, of you know donation to the Kickstarter campaign. That's pretty common with a lot of movies that are funded with Kickstarter. Um, the rewards, you know, go from a dollar to ten thousand dollars, and everything in between. And I, I won't get into all the details about that because it doesn't matter. But just suffice it to say that there's 
I think, a level for everybody. But, yeah, if you want to have a speaking role, um, we can accommodate that. If you want to uh, have your name in the credits, we can do that. Um, name spoken in the movie. See, the cool thing is we haven't written a screenplay yet, so we are crafting reality here. We can do um, whatever we want, and so we can do that kind of stuff. It's a great way to be part of the project and to be part of the movie and to help support it at the same time. We're trying to figure out ways to fold people into this because, I don't know, it's a community thing, and I want people part of it because it's so cool and so amazing. Well, and what better way to get good marketing, right? Even if a person is just mentioned one time in a movie, it's like an aside, like, you know, you, you, you use the person's name as one of the, you know, I don't know, one of the people in a resistance movement across the street or something. That person's going to be like, I'm in this movie, man. And like, well, where are you? Well, like, just talk about me. That's, that really is, I'm the Tom Tom Shepard in the movie or whatever, you know. Like, no, you're not. It's a common name. Then you, and they can say, no, look, I'm in a movie right here. It says I'm in the movie. I was part of this. I helped to get this you know, thing funded, so they, they put me in the movie. People are excited about stuff like that. I mean, if you go to somebody's house, right, and, and they put in tile in the bathroom, oh, my God, it's like a freaking, you know, dong, look at the tile that we put in. People like to be involved, especially if they, if they didn't hire, if they did it themselves, and so you know, if you went to see a friend and they put tile in their bathroom that they did themselves, you know, three weeks ago, they're going to march you straight into, look what we did. People like that. And I think that if we can get that kind of excitement around something, basically that's something you can't buy as a marketer. It has to be organic. It has to happen on its own. And by giving people the freedom of association and saying, hey, yes, you can, no one's taxing you to do this. If you want to be involved, you can and that's where I'm starting to see really amazing things happen. Um, I think the largest Kickstarter ever done was $5 million. Yeah. And it was to make the Veronica Mars movie, which was some series or something that people really liked that I never heard of. Um, but apparently, like, when it went away, people were like, there was a hole in their life or something. And they did this type of thing. Like, you could be in the movie as a quick little one-second cameo or what have you. And, like, their red carpet showing or whatever was crazy with enthusiasm because it wasn't just a bunch of celebrities in expensive dresses. It was real people that were really part of it. And I don't think you're setting a goal of $5 million, but that's just an example of what can happen when people really want something to happen and believe in it and want to be part of it. Yeah, and people can see themselves in the books because I wrote about real people, the kind of people I hang out with, and, and that's the kind of people who are listening to this, and they can see themselves. I've had a little taste of this um, from um, the books. Um, I'll be doing a final edit, and I have a bunch of generic character names, small little character names, and I, I get on Facebook, and I'll say, hey, I need a bad guy cop, and uh, send me some names, and I'll have, <laughs> Jack, in like 20 minutes, I'll have 100 posts, and people will say, ooh, uh, this guy was a real jerk. Um, put his name in here and stuff like that. And I pick it at random, and I tell the person that the name they suggest, sometimes it's their own name, is going to be in the book. And people go bananas, and it's really cool. And it'll be like that, but on a much bigger stage. And, and I love it. I love being able to put people in stuff. It's just a cool, cool feeling. So we've talked a little bit about the trailer for the Kickstarter um, and these, these uh, the the Korean gunfighter guys in there. Yeah. Um, the the two reps are there. Anybody else in the Kickstarter video? People might be familiar with. Oh, uh, this guy named Jack Spirko, and uh, <laughs> and I got to tell you, uh, your your appearance in that video, the things you said, I just 
it's like goosebumps material. It's you tell the story about how this crazy guy, this moderator on your forum, called you and said, "Hey, um, well, why don't you tell the story? You tell it better." Well, this you know, this guy did. I, I you know, I knew my moderator's okay, but I don't really you know, as you know, I don't run the forum. Yeah. I get people that are pissed off sometimes because they break a rule and they come in and they're like, oh, yeah, you're a jerk. Well, the, the moderators are on the forum, dude. I can't help you. And then they get really mad. So I have this, you know, the, the, obviously I care about everybody in the community, but you, know, you can only talk to so many people a day. <laughs> so I have this loose association with my own forum. <laughs> and you know, this moderator shows up like, I'm going to write a book. And it's going to be really awesome. And when I'm when I write the book, can I be on the show? And I'm like, well... Go write the book. <laughs> you know, because somebody's going to write a book every day, dude. Somebody's going to write a freaking book. And, like, they want to know, will you help me with it? Like, I don't know. If it sucks, I'm not going to. Go, go write a book. So, you know, only like a year and a half goes by, and, and you come back to me. You're like, oh, yeah, I wrote the book, but now it's going to be ten books. And I got a publisher. The first book's coming out in a couple months. And can I come on the air and talk about it? I'm like, holy crap, he did it. <laughs> so then I got a copy of the, the first book. Uh, the first two books, actually, uh, before everybody else did, because like, I'm awesome and I get stuff like that. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, this is actually really good. And my wife, you know, liked it. And she, I think you got the exact um, emotional response toward one of the protagonists in the first book. And, uh, you know, from your family you had to deal with as a kid. She's like, he's a bastard. And I'm like, so that's the, when you get emotional responses like that, you've actually given life to a character. So, you know, then, you know, we start this whole process of, you know, every couple months there's another book in the series coming out. And it's one of those things that you, you hear the, the claim a dozen times a month minimum. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that and it's going to be awesome. And then it's, it's one in a hundred that actually does it. So you did it. And that was, that was the, and then it didn't suck, right? So if you wasn't, if you did it and it sucked. But you did it, and it was great, and it was different. Um, there's so many people that they write a book, and I feel like all you've done is taken Rawls's work and changed it, or all you've done is taken you know David Crawford's work and changed it to something that is more in tune with what you were like what you wrote was so in keeping with our community like when I think you know my story with when I started this show, I was already into preparedness and stuff, and I was on a bunch of forums. As just a, a person on the forum, I was on the Backwoods forum a lot, Frugal Squirrels, a bunch of other places, and I immediately just shut down. I'm like, I'm not going to take other people's market away from them. I'm going to go do my thing my way, and if some of those people show up, they're fine. But I stopped posting because I didn't want to be like, you know, basically trying to – the temptation is too great. You're going to try to pull those people into what you're doing. And it, it, the, the show grew organically with its own voice, and I think your your work came out that way because you started with what you knew, which was your own life, and you basically wrote what happened in that life up to the point of, okay, here's where it goes sideways, and now I've got to take artistic license with this, and now I've got to postulate what the future would be like. But right up until that bifurcation in the in the book, it's mostly with some you know literary license your story. Which I don't know that that's ever been done before, in this genre anyway. There's a lot of autobiographical things, like Ted Lackerson's The Eagle Has Crashed. There's a lot of things in there he knows. It's his area. You know, every author usually writes about their area, but not like almost autobiographical for the first two books. Yeah, and I just I think that chronologically we've we've had 
the prepping movement kind of started, took off, I'm going to say, you know, 2008 or so, that's rough figures. And we hadn't had anybody that sat down and said, this is how I became a prepper and this is why and this is what I foresee. And so that's what this is. And so that's why it's autobiographical and, and new because it, timing-wise, we haven't had an opportunity to have people describe what happened to them because it hasn't happened to a lot of them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, like I said, when you get to the point where you go into the future, at that point, you've got to just guess, right? But you're making an educated guess, an educated postulation based on your family, your family's dynamics, the place you live, the history behind your own life, your wife's own life, the, you know, to be to be honest, a very uh, open explanation as to the personality of your children, Uh the, the 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 places in the book really exist, and not just like so. Lackerson's story, right? One of the places is a state park, but a big fight happens. Well, that that park really exists, but he has no more personal association to that state park than anybody else in the state of Ohio. Where the cabin actually exists, the cabin's real. The community at the cabin's real. So that's this blending of what has happened up till now with what might happen with this link back to reality, like the, the, the team exists, the team's real. Um, these people are real. And that's, I think that's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's unusual and I don't know how else to do it. Right. Cause I, I'm not creative. I know well, you're not an author. I, yeah. It's not what I do for a living. Now, that being said, I'll be the first to tell you, I think it turned out amazingly well, but it's not like I sat down and said, I'm going to write 10 books you know the story about the Easter Bunny. The quick version is I had to have an explanation to my reluctant wife why if we had to bug in, all this stuff would show up in the in the garage because I was hiding it elsewhere, right? Like a like a wuss, I was hiding it, right? Terrible. Yeah. I mean, I had to admit that, which wasn't pleasant. And so I had to come up with a reason. Well, I it's the Easter Bunny, honey, which was my way of saying, um, not saying who was right and who was wrong because I don't care about that stuff. I'm here to take care of my family. Here's how we're going to do it. This is what we're going to do. And so the Easter Bunny dropped off. Well, that Easter Bunny speech that I would have to give started off as bullet points on a post-it note, became one page, became a chapter that I was going to put up on the TSP forum. Then it became a book, and then it became ten books to find to tell the complete story. And so you can see from that, it's not like I sat down and said, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Uh, it happened. It, and you're not a writer either. Yeah. I mean, you are now, but I mean – you're not like, you know, as a lawyer, you have to know how to convey things in a brief or something like that. But Jesus Christ, a legal brief is not something that you read for entertainment purposes. <laughs> um, so you have a command of the English language you have to from your education. But I don't think you ever even wrote a story in a school paper. Like, I think you were, I think I remember you telling me something like when I first decided I was going to make this a novel, I had to like look at other people's novels to know the format and flow like how do you quote somebody and how do you how do you create the dynamics so you had to actually learn to write a book as you wrote a book which i think actually a lot of people would look at and go ah that sucks i think that made the book genuine because there was no there was no crafting of like an agenda first it was let's tell the story and then the agenda became let's figure out how to tell the story and write a book that doesn't suck <laughs> right versus let me let me format the agenda into the the writing protocol or the 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 proper uh, dissection of the English language according to the textbook on that. I'm sure there's a writer's guide or something. You just did it, and that meant you had to do it organically. Yeah, because an example is dialogue. 
I don't know how to write dialogue because guess what? I don't do it every day. But that's not in a that's not in a legal brief. Exactly. But people look at the dialogue and they say, "This is so readable, so amazing. I feel like I know these people." And I laugh and I I hate to you know blow their expectations that you know of me. But I say, "Well, the reason this is so real is because it's exactly how this conversation happened in real life." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I've had some writers say that the problem with that is. A lot of the actual conversations that people have aren't that interesting, and I'm like, well, you must have boring friends, <laughs> right? Um, one thing I'd like to touch on, you kind of just did, well, you said like a wuss. Yeah. Somewhere along this walk, you kind of reclaimed your manhood. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how important that is? Because I think it's important for other people to do as well. Yeah, and and this is something I... I'm happy to talk. I think about I even that. called you a puss at one time. Yeah, no, you did. It was funny. It's, it's <laughs> hilarious. It was January 5th, 2012. I remember the date. I seriously do. I, I sent in. Here's a funny story. I haven't told this before, but um, I send in uh, a, a voicemail, you know, um, uh, on the on the call in line, and I said, you know, my wife, this and that, and you said it was hilarious. I remember I was sitting right in bed when I remember listening to this, and you said, "Listen, dude, I'm tired of hearing about your wife. Enough already. Man up." And I listened to that, and I said, he's right. And I, Now, I'd been doing a lot of stuff leading up to that. It's not like I went from zero to 60 at that moment. Sure. But I, I remember thinking, yeah. And so and one of the other real things about this book is I look like an idiot slash wuss, whatever you want to call me, through through part of this book. Um, and, and I'm fine with that because it gets the message out and all that. But anyway, so I basically – had to come to grips with the fact, and this might offend some listeners, sorry, just deal with it. Um, I'm a man, and a man has a certain role. I'm not talking about you know the 50s or anything like that. I'm not talking that stereotypical stuff. I grew up raised by extreme leftists, and I got all this feminist stuff about men are awful, men are evil, uh, men need to be more like women, boys need to be more like girls, and all this other stuff. And I bought into it because it's, it's all I knew. And so I thought, for example, there's something just wrong. There's something, quote, macho, and, of course, macho in the pejorative sense of being horrible, with a guy wanting to shoot a gun. Oh, my goodness, that's, that's terrible. That's, that's practically a hate crime, to want to shoot a gun at a paper target, right? And so I had to overcome a lot of that. And, so, and don't forget, I live in the heart of darkness, western Washington state, the state capital. Everybody around me. Uh, is a statist, uh, works for government, and all this other stuff. I mean, it's 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 absolutely horrible. And you know, the bumper stickers around where I live would would blow your mind, especially you know because you're in Texas. But so I had a, like a huge deficit to overcome. And for me to even use the term man as opposed to person, I know that sounds teeny. For me to say in conversation with my coworkers and everything else to say, well. I'm a man, and here's how I see it. And not being a like a jerk about it, just yeah, just, just even just be, using that word. And sometimes yeah. you get the <gasps> the gasp. It's like he's speaking as a male. Yeah, and here's the thing: that's um, to the exclusion of him being a female. Exactly. Well, I'm sorry, I don't have those parts. I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a chick. Get over. And the flip side of all that is, <laughs> women are women and are have amazingly great qualities and and should be women and i like women to be women i i like women i one in particular very very much so right and so it's all okay it's like i'm a man there are women it's okay to be a man and by the way and when i say this and this is critical and something i had to relearn um when i say be a man that means be a decent respectful 
good human being, which I know goes without saying in this community, but in my world here in Commieville, um, <laughs> you have to right, you have to explain when I say a man. Well, and it's logical that they would brainwash people to that because if you are a a statist and you're a statist in charge, the last thing you want is anybody being a man yep. because men stand up and go, uh, wait a minute. When you're told, oh, you need us to do this to protect your family, men stand up and say, hold on, I will see to the protection of my family, and only at the point that I'm not capable of doing that do I need you at all. That's not conducive to running a herd of sheep. You want sheep, you don't want wolves, you know, because basically what men do when they act like men, and frankly when women act like women, and, and don't try to be homogenized, is we turn the herd of sheep into a herd of cats. Mm-hmm. Big mean-ass cats, too. Not like little house cats, like big mean-ass tigers and lions and shit. <laughs> and anybody who thinks that's disempowering to a woman has never seen lions hunt, right? Because <laughs> it's the women that, that bring down the cave buffalo, right? And the, the male comes in and, and, and knocks off the, the, the one or two times that the woman can't get the job done because of just physical size and strength. And that is what it does. So now you've seen the, I'm sure you remember the old commercial. It was from, I think, uh, Perot Systems or something where they had the, the cowboys trying to herd the cats. Yeah, great. Right? And the cats like swimming across the water crossing and all, and the cowboys are all scratched up. And that's, that's what you're doing. You're taking the herd of sheep and turning into herd of cats. And if you want to try to herd cats, good freaking luck with it, you know? And that's, that's exactly the antithesis of what somebody trying to exert control over human beings wants is people to stand up and say, wait a minute, I don't know that we need you for this. Exactly. And I see that in the Olympia political world and the governmental world. Anything smacking of male behavior is is to be put down. And here's a really quick example. This actually happened. Um, I was out to lunch in Olympia with a friend of mine, and there was somebody in the restaurant. He was he was drunk or high, or I don't know what his problem was, but he was really out. Of, not my friend, right? No, this, yeah. this other guy. He was being really aggressive, and everybody was ignoring it because, see, nobody wants to be the one to raise their hand and stand up and do anything because that's overreacting, right? So everybody was quiet and stuff, and I'm looking at this, and again, the way I grew up, I mean, if that happens, a couple guys get up and they, they try to be polite and they try to talk to the guy, they try to get him outside, but I've seen it, you know, where it goes it goes to fisticuffs pretty soon. If somebody's a threat to other people, you deal with the threat. Well, apparently not in Libville. And so I'm sitting there and, we're, and, and this is escalating and escalating and this crazed, I think rather aggressive guy um, gets really close to this woman and is, is you know, about to to grab her or touch her or something like that. And I'm starting to get up, but I'll be really honest here, more reality. I didn't get up because this is the old me, and I'm embarrassed about that. A firefighter ended up getting up and dealt with the guy and got him out of there. So I come back to my my government office, and I'm describing the story. Jack, you and I know that I don't look particularly heroic in this story because I didn't do anything that I should uh-huh. have done. Even describing the story where I am not a tough guy or even a man, one of uh, one of my statist co- former colleagues says, oh, you wanted to get up and be macho, and macho was like this big put-down. And I thought to myself, sitting here watching a crazed guy potentially hurt a woman and not doing anything, that's like the good thing to do. And standing up and dealing with the situation is some horrible macho thing, but everything you've described about keeping control over people is exactly what 
like yeah. people like the status guy want to do, and it's how they do it. And they have demailed us. Yes, I just made up a new word. Um, but they've they've tried to make us think that being male or being a man or being honorable. Or frankly, like you said, being a woman. Exactly. They don't want women to be women either. Exactly. Because women aren't going to tolerate this this shit any more than, than men are. They just have a different way of dealing with it. It's when you homogenize people and they feel they can't act the way that they are naturally inclined to. You know, what's what's funny is how different things are just a little way away. Like here in Texas, the one day I'm at a Walmart, like kind of in the area where the, like, nursery and the trees and plants all and all, and kind of right toward the outside there's this guy, and he's just mouthing off his wife, I assume. He looked like he was in his late 50s. She was about the same age. She's an older woman, too. And he's like, you're so effing stupid, and he's not saying effing, and how could you be so effing stupid and just berating the crap out of her? And I'm, like, figuring he's going to shut up, so I just stand there and wait a couple seconds. I'm like, dude, don't talk to anybody like that. Yep. No. And he's like, you know, you need to just ignore it. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. And it was like two seconds later, there's another guy going, you need to calm your shit down. Yep. And within about 40 seconds, there were four fairly large individuals telling this one dude to can his shit. And all of a sudden, he got very, very cooperative and, and, and apologized and, you know, what have you, and diffused the situation like that. And people that were kind of gawking and looking around when it was over, they all kind of went, <laughs> shrugged their shoulders and went back to their lives. Yep. Right, and it was absolutely like it was like immediately like that's just not going to happen here, and that is because you had men going, you know what, you don't talk to a woman that way. I don't care if she's your wife. I don't care if she's a stranger. I don't care who she is. You don't do that shit in public. Period. And, and it was just an immediate. We're not going to be doing this. Josiah has actually been sitting here the whole time with us, and he, he tells a similar story of some guy running his mouth at a bar and trying to start a fight and saying something to the effect of, "I've got friends," and their response was, "Well, they're not here." <laughs> and there was like, no one's like, "Oh God, I can't believe you did that." And it's a lunacy. It's a, it's a mental disease that people would think that the right thing to do is allow an extreme version of behavior to go on without using a controlled moderate version of that behavior to stop it. Because that's, that's what they're saying. Like, it's wrong for you to stop this. But it's okay for this ass clown yeah. to go extensive, extreme with it? And it is, you have to be mentally damaged to think that way. And sadly, a big part of our population is. Yeah, they say leave it to the professionals. That's that's one of the things. Let the police handle it. Well, number one, the police like aren't here. This jerk that Joe was dealing with, they're not here. Yeah. Right? His friends weren't there. Well, the professionals aren't here. I guess it was okay for the firefighter to do it. He's sort of a professional. Yeah. No, maybe, he, maybe he should have went and got his hose. <laughs> Hosed him down or beat him with it or something. But, yeah, I, I think that that – now, our, my, my other question, though, is I am starting to see people, even on the left – start to ask the right questions. Um, I was just at Permaculture Voices, and there was a scowl there. She looked like she was in her 50s, real short, cropped hair. And we were talking about, you know, the need for more people that are doing things to stand up and talk about what they're doing. And she's like, she kind of goes off, and she's like, I just want to work my farm, and I don't want any of the politics, any of this. And she's like, you know, I'm, she's like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lesbian, and I've been married to my partner for, for 20 years, and I used to be active in lesbian feminism and everything, and I thought I was farming because that was part of our movement and all. Now I realize it's all bullshit. I happen to be this way as a person, and that's just who I am, and I should just do that. And I farm because I like to farm. Good for her. That's and right like, on. So she'd come from this real leftist ideology, and basically now she's like, the government can't do shit right, 
If we want our if we want our things to be our way, we just need to get out there and do things. So I'm seeing. And I don't know if it's because I you know kind of am in this permaculture circle, which if eventually you have to stop talking and do something. And it's amazing what happens when you actually have to do something and you say, I have a government grant that says my beans will grow and your beans, <laughs> I don't care. Right. And you start to realize you can't, you can't pass a law and make things happen. You actually have to make things happen. And that, that leads people. But are you seeing any of that out of the left side of things? People that are not coming over to the right, but just coming over to the realization that like, it doesn't matter how you're putting your faith in, in government. The faith in government's the problem. Yeah, exactly right. And I see a distinction between the left and status. And I understand what you're saying. Um, people that are what I call left libertarians, um, they they seem to get it, and they they don't seem to be the problem. It's the status who, again, in that example, think the police need to do it because they're they're the professionals. Um, and by the way, the statism uh, it crosses over into the Republican side, you know, a fair amount. There's no partisanship, you know, in my in my world or in this in this book. But yeah, left libertarians I think are getting it. Right libertarians are getting it. Um, we have amazing things in the Washington State Legislature. A quick example: um, a bill passes to basically ban drones. Uh, the hard left and the hard right support it. So we're seeing you know people coming together when they realize there's a a problem that confronts us all. They say, well, let's deal with it, and they're, they're getting together. It's that blob of dependent, statist, uh, lazy, unoriginal thinkers, weak. And I don't mean physically. I mean mentally just they have, they have no capacity to stand up for themselves. They've never had to, Jack. They've, they've always had everything handed to them. There's never been any unpleasantness. There's never been any discomfort, no sacrifice of any kind, and they're just these blobs out there. And those, that's the problem. Those are the folks... I mean, I'm, I'd love for them to get the message, and I hope they do through a variety of sources. Kind of don't spend a lot of time on them, but it's it's the the left and the right um, are I think getting together on the stuff that matters and and good. I I don't like those those right left divisions. Um, I just like decent people and and not decent people because that seems to be my experience. Well, I think in the end, people always do what's in their best interest, right? Like you care about other people, but you care about yourself and your wife and your kids more than you care about me, my wife, and my son. And there's nothing wrong with that. And frankly, dude, I care about my son more than I do yours. <laughs> yep. And I should, right? So people act in their best interest. We have a system that is incentivized some of these people that acting in their best interest is, in effect, a parasitism on others. Of course they're going to act that way. The system itself is going to give you that result. And then when you shake somebody's paradigm by pointing that out, they get very violent very fast. And a lot of these people that consider themselves aristocratic and, and civilized and they think we're just a bunch of redneck heathens with guns, they use violence at others' whims. So what I mean by that is, yeah, they won't pick up the gun, but they're actually – like these people are extremely pro-gun. Right, So these leftists that we call anti-gun, if they were just anti-gun, that wouldn't be a problem because they just wouldn't have guns and I wouldn't care. Right? They're actually pro-gun. And what I mean by that is they're very pro the professionals having guns with which to force you to do what they want. So I've actually found it kind of amusing when you tell somebody that's anti-gun that they're pro-gun and explain it that way. And then they're like, uh, uh, 
uh, but they are. And you have one character in your book, for instance, when she's being whisked away to safety during the you know the, the ongoing initial uh, riots. She feels very important because of that. Yes, it's an adventure. I'm being whisked away, and now I'm powerful because I can take care of this. And like that mentality is because people act in their self-interest. So if we actually want to solve that problem, we have to create systems where acting in your best interest creates a positive result. But the government has made that all but impossible in many places. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, the, the people out there, the, the status, they're all for the Connecticut State Police going door-to-door and trying to take guns because they're not going to get shot. They, the, the people suggesting that. And, and they're totally okay with those guys having loaded ARs across their chest and, 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 and coming in with battery ramps and using guns that are unsafe to take your guns that are unsafe. Right? That's, that's totally acceptable to them. One, and this is illustrated, I think, well, uh, one of the little snippets in the book. Um, my sister, who's a professor in real life, yes, I didn't make that up. Um, she's describing how in Seattle the, the hard left has taken over. The rest of the state is, is fending for itself and, and all that, but Seattle is just it's being run like you'd expect Seattle to be run in a collapse. And she expresses her relief, and she says, now the right people are in charge. Now people like me are in charge. Isn't this wonderful? And there's gunfire in the background and all this other yeah. stuff. And she's okay with all that. Now, she's a lot yeah. nicer in real life. I'm not making fun of my sister. But I think okay. it's a great way to illustrate what you're talking about. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's what my thought was when I was reading, I think it's the third book maybe or the fourth book that has that story of the, maybe it's the, I don't even remember, but the, the lady being whisked away. Yeah, I don't remember which character she is, but she's. This is an adventure. I'm important, and and that I remember that line too. The right people are now in charge, which is it's so short sighted. And the reality is, the problem we have is there are so many areas in life where the reality is nobody should be in charge. Yeah, it's not whether it's the right or left, or it's the Republican or the Democrat or even the Libertarian. Like there, there are just certain parts of life that no one should have authority over anybody else at all in whatsoever, ever. And the minute you give somebody that power, they're going to use it for ill purposes because why? We do what's in our own self-interest. And if I give you the power to fart gold coins, (laughs) you're probably going to eat a lot of beans. Right? (laughs) I'm serious. You're going to. You're going to start eating beans and broccoli and tempura, and you're going to fart your brains out because every time you do a gold coin comes out. And if I say, dude, those beans are bad for your heart, you're going to be like, yeah, but I get gold. <laughs> a new twist on Jack and the Magic Beans, huh? <laughs> I mean, just blatantly, I mean, if you put it that blatant, right, people will do what's, what serves them best. And people always want to try to make like everybody wants to be like Mother Teresa or whatever. And it's only bad people that do what's in their own self-interest. And the reality is the greater the ability to act in your self-interest at the expense of others, then the greater your propensity to act in your self-interest at the expense of others. Whereas the less ability a person has to act in their own best interest at the expense of others, the less they'll behave that way. And it, it, it is that blatantly simple, but no one wants to look at it that way because it requires us then to examine this entire paradigm that we're in and go, gee, this is effed up, because it is. I mean, we're living like non-human beings right now. Like you were saying they're trying to take away being a man or being a woman. Well, if you're not being a man or being, not being a woman, then you're also not being human. 
Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, man, how can people help you guys out this, this, with this Kickstarter thing? Are you guys up and running with this yet? Yeah, we will be um, by the time this airs. Uh, and uh, they can go to 299days.com, 299days.com. Um, for the first uh, 10 or so days from uh, about March 20th until April 1st, people can order uh, pre-sales of DVDs or Blu-rays. And here's the thing. We're not getting credit card numbers. I mean, this is like pledging. We get your name and your email address. We don't share it with anybody. Uh, so we can get a hold of you if the if the project funds and there's going to be a movie, then we can ask you for you know credit card stuff. Um, and then from April 2nd until May 2nd will be the Kickstarter campaign itself. Uh, you can get to that on the 299 Days website or on Kickstarter. There's a, a reason that I need to briefly explain about why we did this kind of two-stage thing with uh, DVDs first. With Kickstarter, if you don't get pledges for the amount of money you set as the goal – um, you don't get the money, the project doesn't go forward, and all that other stuff. So our goal is to have the Kickstarter campaign be, be for as little money as possible. And so what we'd like to do is do DVD pre-sales to, to get some of the pledges that we'd otherwise need to get on Kickstarter. Besides, Kickstarter charges 7%, so we'd like you know 100% instead of 93% of the money to come into the project. So that's why we're doing that. And then, and, and Kickstarter, you know, a lot of listeners probably know this, but it's used. It's been used for tens of thousands of projects, short films and albums and all kinds of stuff. This isn't some thing we made up. You know what I mean? This is a pretty – you were mentioning, you know, a $5 million uh, movie that was funded this way. This is the way a lot of things are, are funded. So it's, you know, established and legit. Another thing, and I'm, I'm a stickler about this, and, and, and you and I talked about this, and, and you were very happy that this was going to be happening the bank records that show the spending will be up on my website. People will see where the money's going. Um, my name and the account numbers will be blacked out, of course. But this this is open. I'm that kind of guy. I'm, I'm open. Boom. If this is a community project like it is, the community needs to see what's going on. So, I mean, maybe I get some emails. Somebody's mad because there's like, you know, we spent too much on sandwiches one day or something like that. But whatever it is, um, it's all going to be out there. I have control over that account, and so does my accountant, and that's it. Um, nobody else does, and so that's the way I want to run it because my name and reputation in this community means a lot to me, and uh, we're going to make sure that nobody has a bad experience with this. Well, it's the only way you've been able to do what you've done. Yeah. You, you, you don't have – you're not Tom Clancy or Brad Thor. You don't have a track record of New York Times bestsellers. You have a publisher, but you don't have, you know, like, um, you know, the Times or something backing you that they could just go out and, and say to uh, to Barnes and Noble, you will buy one hundred thousand copies of the first book we release, and if you do not, we will throw you to the the lions or whatever and force the book into circulation. You've had to do it just based on your personality, who you are, and how you're known. And without that, you'd have nothing. And I think that that is. That's part of new entrepreneurship as well. Like because of the internet, because of forums and social media, people now again value their relate their reputation a lot more because you can't buy that. You have to build it, and that makes you really conscious of how you use it. Yeah, it's exactly right. I was just going to say that you know it's a great way not to spend money on stupid stuff is to not get the emails about why'd you spend money on stupid stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it keeps you honest, you know. Yeah. Well, cool, man. So uh, this this is live uh, as the, as people are listening to this two ninety nine day two nine nine days dot com, and uh, people can interact with you over there as, as well, right? 
Yeah, um, there's there's Facebook two nine nine days parentheses the book. Uh, that's a great way. I'm a big Facebook guy. I guess there's a little Twitter. I'm not a real big Twitter fan, but um, we keep that's one of more updates. But Facebook's a good way to do it. And there'll, there'll be um, Kickstarter stuff. You know, if if you're in if you're listening to this and, and doing this during the Kickstarter phase, it's really really important to go onto the site, the Kickstarter site, which will be you know you type in 299 days on Kickstarter or you go to it through my site 299days.com. When you're on the Kickstarter site, please watch the video. I think. The video is amazing. It's got some some great footage of you. I think the outtake at the end between you and me is is hilarious. Um, the people, a handful of people who have reviewed this video beforehand, <laughs> love that love that outtake between us. But um, and and not only watch the video, uh, but hit the share button and share this on your Facebook page and and like it and do that other stuff because you know we have so many amazing technological gifts right now. That, that allow us to get messages out. And the, the bad guys, the status, whatever, they have a lot of tools in their toolbox. We have a pretty awesome tool, and that's the ability to communicate like we do. So please hit that Facebook thing and share that link and get other people watching that video trailer because um, that's, that's going to be really, really important to get this funding goal met um, to, to do this. And on the funding goal, one last note about that, with Kickstarter, if we don't raise the funding goal, nobody's credit cards get charged. So yep. nobody pays a cent unless we meet the funding goal, which means we can then make the movie. So nobody's buying DVDs of a movie that doesn't exist, okay? That's <laughs> not going to yep. happen. <laughs> yep. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I appreciate all the work you've done uh, with your book and as a moderator on the forum and a member of our community and uh, for prepping in general. And thanks for being uh, with us on the air again today, Glenn. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jack. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Glenn Tate, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.